Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. In this episode, I interview Jean-Philippe Cotard. He joined Microsoft in 1984 as one of the first employees outside the US. And now his only boss is CEO Satya Nadella himself. It is an incredible journey that started out by selling software out the back of a car. We talk about his personal journey, the foundation he has created to inspire young entrepreneurs, and the wider work being done to develop technology careers in the UK. We filmed this episode in partnership with Microsoft, above their bustling flagship store in Oxford Circus. It was a great experience and an even better episode. JP, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you so much, Jimmy. <laughs> Tell us, what's your role at Microsoft? So Microsoft um, working on an exciting piece of work called National Transformation Partnerships, which consists in partnering with governments, large enterprise, on really adding on top of our technology innovation, a couple of very important attributes to society and economy. One is skilling for meaningful jobs in tech, mm -hmm. which I think it would be an interesting discussion together. Yeah. The other one is cybersecurity, is a big concern across the world. And the third one is really... Uh, sustainability and societal impact through technology. And I'm also uh, very involved in terms of uh, coaching some of our talents. I'm actually passionate about a school of food called Positive Leadership. I'm also doing a podcast like you, <laughs> Jimmy. And the third arena is a, a new initiative we launched, I launched six months ago called Entrepreneurship of Positive Impact, which mm -hmm. is about all these new wave entrepreneurs who want to change the world for good. <laughs> and you're the... On the global leadership team, yep. you're the only one that's based outside of, of the US. What that's that, correct. What does that mean? <laughs> Interesting question. You've been, uh, I've been privileged, lucky, passionate, or crazy enough, you could say, to work for Microsoft for 38 years. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I've been living in Paris. Uh, I've been also living a few years in the US, uh, in Western states. And I would say it's interesting because, in a way, when I'm doing those uh, Microsoft Teams meetings with the senior leadership team, which I'm going to do actually tomorrow night, SLT. Of course, the meeting will happen in the night here in yeah, Paris yeah. <laughs> when it's a day and early morning in, in Redmond. I think it's, it's an interesting perspective because having my feet on the ground in Europe and traveling the world for the company as well, I'm always agitating a little bit <laughs> the global and local dimension of a company like Microsoft, which of course is a global company by design. But I think having a voice there is, is quite important. Yeah. Um, and talk us through, what was your first job at, at Microsoft 38 years ago? Wow. Yeah. So it was back in 1984. I joined a company uh, and uh, my first job was actually uh, a sales engineer. What is that? Well, yeah. when I joined Microsoft, first of all, to get perspective, it was a startup. The yeah. company was like 1,000 people globally. I joined the French subsidiary yeah. in a very small suburb called Les Ulysse. Not Not that fancy or exciting. <laughs> And there were 10 of us, so it was employee number 11. And my job was basically to take my little Renault 11 car yeah. with a huge compact portable. Maybe you are, you are yeah, born, yeah, probably I'll, you remember, because the dependent generation, they don't know what I'm talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah. Those were like almost swing machines, you know, that you had on your shoulders, 12 kilos. And it was going everywhere in the cities in France to recruit some partners to go and start selling the very first software Microsoft was building. At the time, Microsoft was actually the developer of uh, MS-DOS, which yeah. is an ancestor to Windows, <laughs> the first operating system for the PC computer. And we're also uh, selling uh, development tools for developers. And eventually we get into the applications business with spreadsheets, multiple, you don't even know this 
probably this product, which which was our first spreadsheet before Excel. Right. And, yeah, so, yeah. and then the rest is history. And so my job was to recruit partners, to train them, to support them, to educate them on what software was about. Because today it's obvious, but in 94, that was a nation industry. It was yeah. nothing. It was little, little industry, very small. And how did you explain what software was to somebody that hadn't come across computers? It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an ex excellent question because, uh, to tell you the truth, I had to convince sometimes people coming from, I mean, I would tell you, from the porn industry. And they thought that it would, they would make a lot of money yeah. into that new sexy software PC industry. So the way we do that is actually to demo the products. Because talking about software, this world in France in particular as well, yeah. was not even... Uh, you, know, you would not translate it. It was logiciel, okay? My, <laughs> finally, after a few years, we got a word. <laughs> and I told them at the end of the day, it's about really getting uh, information at your fingertips. You think about it back in the mid-80s, there was no microcomputers. I mean, it was just yeah. the first out with the Apple II. Yes. My friend Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. So it's a very different machine than Macintosh. It was an open machine at the time. Apple was open. Yeah. <laughs> and I worked for a startup in France. So this is where I got in love, actually, with software. And because of that, I thought that, wow, something big is going to happen. Because if you, can, if you can enable people in small businesses, in anywhere, in schools, in communities, to manage information, data, worlds, content, games, whatever, by their own, it's like, it's like the ultimate empowerment of people. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So that got, in my, that got in my mind, that got in my blood, in a way. And that's the reason why I joined Microsoft. And there's a there's a Microsoft folklore story that I was being told before, and I don't know if it's true, but in selling the uh, those computers out the back of the Clio, that you were actually doing it with Bill Gates at one stage. Is that true? I mean, did I meet with Bill? Did I was absolutely. I've been I've been I've been actually with Bill in many many country visits across the world for many years when Bill was the CEO of the company at the time because yeah. we were three CEOs. And and has been a I mean it's been pretty amazing moments in my life to to share time with Bill to think not, not just to talk about software of course we did talk a lot about our software opportunities and the way we could expand the way we could actually enable more scenarios to yeah. the economies societies but also understanding from Bill's perspective on the world which was pretty unique yes um, and what what have your kind of you've literally sort of grown up through with the company yeah. in the thirty eight years. What are some of the different roles that you've held at different points? So I must say, I've been someone mostly, uh, I would say, working in the field. Because you know, when you work in a large global company at Microsoft, you are, I'm, I'm kind of black, black and white, you know, a bit binary. You are either working in the headquarters, you know, with Microsoft, it's called Redmond, it's in Washington State, close to Seattle, on the Northwest Pacific coast, or you're working in the field, meaning on the ground, facing customers. So the roles I had were basically starting with that sales engineer role I was talking about. Then very quickly, I was given a responsibility to actually open the markets in Spain, in Portugal, in Greece, in the Netherlands. So kind of getting my feet into international world, which you know, I was not necessarily prepared for, which was wonderful, got me excited to get our products ready for that. Then I worked actually in Redmond headquarters. I was, uh, I was the head of uh, all the business planning for the company. I was the head of... Uh, also, our sales marketing tools for the field and, and, and the strategy planning. And then I came back. I was offered a wonderful job, which was to run Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Yeah. Then I expanded to international and then global. 
that's in a nutshell what I did and a few other things in the middle. <laughs> um, yeah. What have been the biggest changes? I mean, yeah. you talk about sort of, you know, selling out the Clio to begin with, and now we sit yeah. uh, <laughs> on top of the Regent Street store and one yeah. of the most sort of like prominent uh, <laughs> shopping streets in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. So what kind of changes have you seen along the way? I mean, there must be so many, but what are the highlights? Yeah, I mean, uh, I can certainly recall so many, so many chapters of that story, but I would say a couple of highlights. Uh, I mean, number one, obviously, is when we we open our windows to the world with windows. So the, <laughs> when windows emerge, uh, you know, you have to think at, at the time, actually, the PC was basically a bunch of text and characters on your screen, right? Was yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that, that was not a very user-friendly experience. And of course, you had the Macintosh from Apple on the market coming up, uh, and and we came up with Windows. So the, the the very first, I would say, turning point was this Windows ninety five launch, yeah, uh, which was pretty amazing, and uh, and 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 in a way that that started to aim, that started that was starting point to get actually. Uh, the vast majority of people, citizens, users in the world getting excited about the PC phenomenon. That was a big democratization way of the PCs. Yeah. Windows, uh, Windows basically on the PCs because it got, it got massive and it got into a, into a pretty big excitement. A couple other inflection points, obviously, is, uh, is only as a company when we, when we went seven, eight years ago to take a, a fast forward to, to become a cloud-first AI-first company. So moving in a way from... Uh, a pure core software development company, yeah. which has been software forever, into a company building cloud services and platforms. So in essence, all the services you use today, either as a consumer, as citizens, or as a business user, on, on, a, on a hyperscale cloud infrastructure in the world. And it enables us, of course, to do a lot more, to achieve more, and to empower many people on the planet to, to achieve much more. Yeah. Um, and... One of the questions we ask on the show is if you were 22 in 2022, <laughs> where would you be sort of starting your career um, and so on? What, what excites you most about the economy now? And if you were a young person, where would you be heading? I think if I were, if I were a young person, I'm actually trying to, I'm, still, I'm actually doing that still, I'm actually still, I'm doing that as well today. I would, I would get involved in a way or another, either as an entrepreneur, probably. That's something I would love to do if I was 22 years old, uh, in building basically a tech for a good company. Yeah. So basically combining my passions for tech on one hand with the societal impact. And understanding the way I could leverage all the innovation coming from cloud, AI, blockchain, and more to have a positive impact in the world. Yeah. Whether it is climate change, whether it is social inclusion, whether it is... Uh, you know, human rights, there's so many fields. And I meet with those guys today on the ground in the UK, actually, today I was meeting with a number of them as well, social entrepreneurs yeah. and, and others. And I think that's what I would do if I was 20, 23 years old, Jimmy. <laughs> and, and how do you keep entrepreneurship alive within a company the size of Microsoft? That's a great question. I think, that at least personally, in my life, I'm privileged because I've been able to combine my passion with Microsoft and outside of Microsoft. Microsoft, uh, We've been uh, certainly engaging, embracing uh, the startup phenomenon for many years. What we decided to do recently, and I've been kind of leading that work, is to shape an initiative targeting social entrepreneurs and startups that really want to have a positive impact with technology. Yeah. And so we built an initiative where we go and select those companies. 
who have a real mantra and North Star in terms of the social impact they want to have in the world. And we come as, a, as of course, a global hyperscale company to enable them to scale up, to do a lot more through tech-intensive innovation and offer them as well the power of ecosystem globally to basically sell their cloud services to the customers, to the public sector across the world because we've got a huge demand today happening. And then in my personal life, I also created a foundation in my home country in France called Live for Good. Yeah. And Live for Good mission is to unleash the potential of use from all walks of life through social entrepreneurship. So as you can see, uh, I can leave my passions either way. <laughs> exactly. and, and talk to us a bit about how Paris has changed and, and France more generally as well as a startup nation. Because actually 10 years ago, you know, it wasn't yeah. really a uh, an option. And I used to uh, joke <laughs> in number 10 that I would... <laughs> I would worry about you know, which business leader Emmanuel Macron had had over <laughs> in France that week. Um, but yeah, talk us through how it's changed. Yeah, I, I, I must say there's been a, a huge shift. And I think the shift has been a, a mental shift, a mindset shift, which is always the most important in a country. Because in a way, 10 years ago, if you were living in France, if you're a youngster or, you know, actually be, be, being an entrepreneur was not that sexy, was not that exciting. It was like, well, come on, get a job, you know, in the public services. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, uh, get get a real job, right? And I would say the government, to, to give him some credit, I think has done a very nice job with a number of enterprises as well, with some investors, to create really a, a, a healthy startup ecosystem. I think many people may have heard or not of Station F, Station F, which has, been, uh, has become actually the largest hub for startups. But beyond that, you had actually a number of... Uh, successful entrepreneurs that have built kind of that have been actually building some role models for youth. And you get really a nice flying wheel across the country. And we even see, which is new actually, I think the COVID-19 maybe has helped, some great, very skilled young engineers or business people coming back to France to start a startup in France and not necessarily go all west to Silicon Valley to do to do, and some of them did that as well. But actually, to to build in out of France, which is a very new phenomenon. And why do you think that mindset shift has happened? I think I think there's a combination of things. I mean, first of all, uh, there's been a very different narrative about what the enterprise world is all about. Because before you, you become an entrepreneur. You have to relate to the corporate world. The corporate world is a big, big thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I would say uh, to, to make it simple, simple, it was a view, obviously, in the country, it's still some of that view, but much less, that the corporate world was not a nice place to go and live. It mm. was, you know, without any values. And it was like those ugly people who make so much profits and, and they are not necessarily, you know, uh, creating any social cohesion for the country and so on and so forth. I think the narrative has changed. And it has changed in a way that is not just because the, the corporate world, I think, has changed its style as well, but also because the actually youth, but also the education system has evolved, not completely, but has evolved. And the political system as well has been supported by investing, actually, investing real uh, money into creating those ecosystems all across France, not just Paris. Actually, you've got ecosystems in a few large cities in France and, and most of the young people want to become entrepreneurs. Actually, the last data point was last year, there was 1 million uh, companies created in France. 1 million for right. the first time. Yeah. And a lot of that is about self-entrepreneurs or, or, or startups, which, is, which has never happened before. That's a pretty big, big, big turning point, yeah. Absolutely. And one of the, <laughs> one of the phrases that sometimes gets uh, uttered or, or is that 
George W. Bush, the American president, said, problem is with the French, they don't have a word for entrepreneur. <laughs> is that true? It's actually a French real entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the paradox. <laughs> no comments. And digital careers more broadly as well. Yes. Like it's, there's so many opportunities now. One of the reasons we, yeah. do, we do the podcast is that there's this kind of paradox that there's, it's never been a better time to be starting or shifting your career because yeah. there's more options available than ever before. But in a way, that makes it harder as well to actually know where yeah. to go. It's not like the 80s where there are more set routes. Yeah. So what's your kind of uh, advice to people that are sort of starting their career at Microsoft? Yeah, I think it's, it's a great and very timely question, Jimmy, because uh, I was, again, spending time today in the UK with our team and with some customers, organizations. If you just take the UK as a country, there's a need for 22 million jobs with digital skills, early entry-level jobs, all the way to the most sophisticated job, 22 million. In terms, actually, of jobs being that needs to be filled, with an IT perspective, you've got 2.6 million jobs needed in the economy now in the UK. So. Coming back to your question, I think there's different paths to get there. And I yeah. think, you know, you know, you know, in our traditional mindset, not just in UK, everywhere in Europe or in the world, we've been always thinking about, okay, I'm going to get a computer science degree. I'm going to study in that prestigious engineering school, this and that, which is all wonderful. And I'm not saying that's not working, that's working. But it's, it's very much an elite system increasingly. And you know well that in many countries in the world, there's a huge problem in terms of financing, funding yeah. such studies for the broadest youth, right? Not, not the one that can afford it. And so what I found out, which is uh, another passion of mine in terms of the skillings for, for tech jobs, is you have some wonderful organizations like Generation UK, which I, I think you know well, yeah, yeah. like QA and others. And others I found in France, in the UK, in Germany as well, social enterprise. They are doing a, a very neat job of screening and talking to the underprivileged youth in the countries. So all those minorities that are not touched at all and who have never been told they would be able or they would dare think about having a tech job. Yeah. Never, ever. So they find them, number one, which is not easy because you have, you know, you have not to use the traditional social media yeah. stuff. You have to find them where they are. And then you have to build a program, which is typically a 12-week kind of boot camps, picking a very well-defined type of role, which is available like data analytics jobs, like first-level cybersecurity jobs, and get them the confidence, the mentorship, the support to get certified with Microsoft support as well. And then they get a job for 80 or 90% of them into one of our partners or one of our customers. So back to your question, I would say, I would tell you, and I had a discussion with one of them, Ibrahim, just before this podcast, and he's a guy who was dreaming of getting into tech, but he, he, he never found a way to do it because he never had any financial means to do it, the, the, the degrees, and he heard well, most about generation. He got, he got screened, he got agreement, and know he's wonderful. And I and actually had the chat with his employer in the UK was like incredibly impressed and excited about Ibrahim and his team yeah. <laughs> because making such a difference. So I think the diversity of skills, the ability to get into a non-conventional learning journey to get tech job is feasible now. Yeah. And what, what role... Does Microsoft have in sort of like going out to reach those places, right? Coming from my background in yeah. government, like it's all, it's great having all the courses and the, and the careers, yeah. but there's almost like a step before that of like, how do you actually reach those individuals? Like, how do you get to them? What's 
what is Microsoft's responsibility to do that? Because there'd be plenty of people who say, well, it's it's not your your role to do. Yeah, so I think so. I think as a company, to, to be honest, I think it all start again stems from our, our commission as a company. We we use a few words which I deeply believe into. It's not just a marketing slide. It's actually yeah. deep. We talk about empowering every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. And as part of that mission, of course, we innovate. Of course, we invest incredibly deeply on technology. We build this hyper-scale cloud infrastructure over the world, including in the UK. But we realize that we have an important mission to, to accomplish as well, which is to enable an inclusive, sustainable, responsible growth wherever we operate in the world. So it means that when you can do good, if you can, you can do well, sorry, while doing good, by adding some of those capabilities. And so with our clients, by the way, it's business. It's not philanthropy, it's real business. Yeah, yeah. As we talk to some of our key customers in the UK, in the US, anywhere in the world, they are all in needs of finding those diverse talents for IT and tech, as an example. So we decided a couple of years ago to launch a very large initiative called the Global Skills Initiatives, where we've been building, obviously, some learning platforms and assets called that Microsoft Learn, GitHub for developers, LinkedIn, which is part of the Microsoft yeah. family as well, of course, with a lot of content, courseware, soft skills too, by the way. And we've been really blending that with some of the partners that I was mentioning, as an example, before, to create some end-to-end -end journeys and opportunities from skilling to jobs. And I think the more we are targeting in a very laser-focused way, those people who are the most in need yeah. and who could bring, honestly, a fresh uh, breeze of, uh, of air in many of our companies, I think the best job we'll do for, for the industry. Because the, the tech industry has not necessarily done a great job in terms of inclusion. Yeah. So do you think you can teach entrepreneurship? Oh, that's a great question. I think... You know, it depends on the context. I think when I think about Microsoft as a pretty large company, right? We have yeah. like 220,000 people working in the company. As a manager, uh, uh, as a leader, uh, uh, I've always been passionate about the way I could actually have a bunch of entrepreneurs in my team. Yeah. Easy to say, hard to do in a large company. And I think, I think to me, it starts from a, a mindset uh, standpoint. It's all about a mindset you have as a leader in terms of the way you, you create, first of all, you, create, you need to create a climate of trust with your people so that it can actually take risk. They feel safe. They feel supported. And any one of us can make mistakes. Of course, making mistakes all the time is a problem for sure. But if you get, if you get a supporting environment where you can actually take a bet, take a risk on a, a new thing, a new initiative, not just business as usual as a company, I found out that in my professional at Microsoft, that pays off a lot. And I've, yeah. done, I've tried to practice that in the limits of that corporate blueprint, I would say. No, in my social life, I mentioned briefly with my foundation, Live for Good, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. So what we do, we've created a journey of a nine-month journey program where we basically onboard a cohort of 50 young entrepreneurs from 18 years old, 30 years old, from all walks of life, all kind of diversity. And then we create a curriculum with three weeks of campuses, a lot of digital workshop as well, where we teach them two things, basically. One is a mindset called positive leadership mindset, which I'm very passionate about. <laughs> Maybe your podcast. podcast. <laughs> exactly. And, and the second thing is actually how to build a positive impact company, startup. And so the, the, the key thing, the magic, is when you connect those two things together. And I do believe, actually, that's, that's going to be an optimist, as you could, could feel, probably. 
I think it's going to be, it's becoming almost like a mainstream phenomenon. Because when you think about the new wave of entrepreneurs here in the UK, the same in yeah. France, I mean, the vast majority of the new generation, they just don't want to be rich and famous. Yeah. They truly want to be proud of an impact in the world. And so they might not be familiar with what the social impact is, by the way, because there's a lot of theory and works and, you know, measurements and type and, and, and the theory of change, all that stuff. But I'm very passionate about the way you can actually transform some young people who never thought about becoming entrepreneurs in becoming a change maker through yeah. their social enterprise. And it's a wonderful journey I've done for the last six years in France with 300 entrepreneurs. And it's super, you know, it's super exciting to see some of them after a few years, you know, having 30 people, employees in their companies, having an impact on thousands of CO2 tons, uh, you know, basically cut from the, from, from the planet. Having creating uh, hundreds of jobs, these people with disabilities in the countries, and so on and so forth. And it's all about that entrepreneurship mindset. And why did you start that foundation? So I started this foundation with, uh, for a very personal reason. I started with my family as I lost my son, Gabriel. And Gabriel was 22 years old, and he had created a website called Live for Good. He created this website when he was... 19 years old, when he came back from a, a, from a trip in Malaysia uh, where he was helping with uh, you know, an NGO called Habitat, Habitat for Humanity, building house for people who don't have any means. And so com when coming back in France, he decided to create this website to raise some money. Uh, and so as a family with my wife and my two daughters, uh, to be honest, it was late 2015, to give us just some perspective on the horizon as a family, mm. We decided to basically to honor the values of my son because in many ways he was a lot more into enabling others to do more, into particularly supporting people who were much less privileged than my, my kids are, clearly. And we decided to create Live for Good to enable youth, again, from all walks of life, to help them changing the world yeah. one at a time, even in a modest way. And I would say that's been probably a... That's been a I'm not saying it's not about having a therapy. There has been a wonderful way for family to basically get and live and find in that connect with youth every single day of our lives to get some hope uh, for the future. When an event like that happens, how do you kind of put yourself back together? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's hard to tell, Jimmy. It's hard to tell. It's not something you, you translate easily with words. I think... Mm. I think each, as a parent, as a, as a dad, the same with my wife, as, as a mom, my daughter is differently, his brother. I think each one of us has, to find, has had to find his own way, her own way. I think what matters a lot to us, I think, was to get that family unity, that family deep, deep connection alignment in, in basically embarking all together on a, this new adventure. And this new adventure was, it's not about creating an enterprise, an NGO and foundation. It was really about all those young people that we could, where we could have a, a little bit of impact on their lives and having a positive impact, which is exactly what, what my son left us, left us with, me with, with some personal messages about, you know, giving me lessons about what I should do more in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and, an, and an amazing legacy to kind of carry on and, and so on. It's a, yes, it's, 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 a, it's a very particular legacy to carry on, yes. How many people are you, how big do you think it could go in terms of? 
you know, uh, I'm not Microsoft, obviously, my foundation. <laughs> today, today we are helping 100 young entrepreneurs per year in France. We are trying to, we are, we are working to scale that up to hopefully 250, 300 a year in the next couple of years, which will make us actually the largest social entrepreneurs we use in the country. And hopefully, because I'm also very much focused on tech, I built a tech platform with that to enable other organizations like Live for Good to do the same at yeah. scale. And so that's the next dimension of the impact I can contemplate in the years to come so that it could go beyond the frontiers of France because there are wonderful people do the same or similar things in Africa, in Europe, in Asia. And I love, obviously, to connect the dots, to work with them as well, to amplify the impact. So maybe if I come back here on the podcast in two, three years, I could share some great news with a lot, yeah. many more beneficiaries. That's not my dream. That's the plan I'm working on, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, we have the Prince's Trust here in the UK, which is yes. pretty amazing kind of. Yes, of, of doing it and the yeah the impact is is long and um hmm. uh yeah it's a, it's a great thing to to do how have you found the transition because you're you hmm. know you're doing your podcast yep. and so on and you're, and you're becoming like speaking to your team beforehand as well you're becoming almost a public figure now for for microsoft hmm. and, and so on how have you found transitioning to to that kind of role and almost creating <laughs> yes. your own voice you know to be honest jimmy i mean it was about 18 months ago uh you know 18 months ago i was still running the commercial business of microsoft globally for mm. satana dallas so all of our subsidiaries a pretty intense business every quarter closing numbers i've done that i counted actually i've been closing 146 quarters in my life so one day i came to satya it was two years ago I told satya i want to move on <laughs> yeah i love this company i can help i've been helping it and I was ready to actually even leave the company. And he said, no, no, please stick around and, and pick your agenda. And so that's the agenda I share with you, <laughs> yeah. which is wonderful. And it gives me, uh, of course, an incredible privilege, harmony in what I do with Microsoft and outside Microsoft. Because when I'm working with social entrepreneurs with Microsoft, I, I'm also bringing my, 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 my own kind of experience or deep experience with what I do in my home country. Yeah. And I've got, I think, a pretty good, understanding actually of those people <laughs> that I meet everywhere in the world in where I can help with my persona in a way because I, of course I work with a large company in a way as a, as a spokesperson as someone who can help I know I can have, a, I can have an impact and I really want to use that personally yeah. as well to magnify that impact wherever I can but moving from kind of closing quarters to having a voice and so on it's, it's like it's a big transition and, and it is a transition that... you know in many ways uh, as, as I was running the business I was I was already having a voice because I was in many ways presenting the company in many of the countries where we operate in the world. I was, I've been the executive traveling the most for Microsoft for the last 30 years. Yeah. I've been opening most of my subsidiaries in the world since the inception. Uh, and so in many ways, I've been the one kind of talking about what Microsoft stands for in Kenya, in Mexico, in Korea, in Japan, in UK, in France, in all those countries one by one for years. And, and so today, I'm having, of course, a different role, and I can really align even more my passion without, you know, without having the anxiety of the numbers coming in or not for yeah. the company. And in a way, it, it's coming almost naturally, I would say. The podcast was something else. <laughs> it was more of a learning need I had, having a bit of more time, which yeah. was wonderful. I guess like you, to learn from others yeah. and to learn from amazing people I got to meet, <laughs> inviting yeah. them. And when you invite someone, you, you need to study. And then so I be, I'm trying to do my homework, watching, reading their books, what they've done, and try to enter in those intimate discussions that you know well to really share common passions on some of the attributes of that positive leadership. And I, I found that incredibly fulfilling to do that, actually. 
if um, people are going to go and listen to an episode, what's the best one to start with that you've done so far? <laughs> the one with Sachi is very interesting. Well, Sachi is very interesting, but anyway, of course, it's so close to me, my job, Max, the persona. It's a wonderful one. I think I would I would point to a couple of others. One is with Kim Cameron. Kim Cameron is uh, one of the godfathers of positive psychology. He's yeah. been writing a few famous books for people who've been studying positive psychology. One called Positivity, and 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 it's a wonderful episode where you could see the, you could see actually not just the science, but actually the approach of that positivity in leadership. What it what it takes. And another one which I, I, I loved a lot a couple of months ago was Paul Polman, who is actually in the UK that you know well, the former CEO of Unilever. And Paul used to be a CEO for ten years. You never know well, I'm sure. Yes. And now he's reinvent. He's been also kind of reinventing his life with Imagine and what he does. So we had a wonderful discussion about <laughs> what it is, what it takes. And uh, anyways, uh, I could point to many other episodes. Another one was recently with Sir Ronald Cohen. Yes, wonderful, wonderful person, wonderful Godfather human. Of, Gen- uh, of venture capital, completely, basically. but also Godfather of social innovation bonds, starting yeah. in the UK, which which he like he did. He was uh, working on his problem of the prisons in the UK, and where he could see, he could show the social return uh, on investment for the first time. <laughs> yeah, to get the financial system to work for social innovation. Anyway, wonderful the discussion. <laughs> To turn into something that's that's not as um, positive, like, the, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about Microsoft is the way that it's kind of, it's not rebranded in terms of its name, mm. but it's definitely gone through a bit of a curve in terms yeah. of yes. uh, the life cycle of a company. Yeah, we're recording this the day after, um, you know, Meta's shed 15% of its workforce, you know, Twitter 50%. Yeah, what's your kind of reflections on that in terms of, what those companies need to do and and the employees there and the employees that have lost their jobs as well. What are your reflections for them? The reflection is, first of all, um, innovation will keep growing and flowing through the world in terms of technology. So there's kind of a, uh, you know, a a huge need and demand in terms of digitizing the economy and the society. So we should never lose that perspective long term. It's still there. In the meantime, you're right. Of course, the economy everywhere in the world is starting to be shaky, clearly, yeah. not to say the most. And I would say it, it is a reminder to all of us as tech companies that, yeah, the trees cannot go all the way to the skies all the time, <laughs> to be honest. I've been always someone actually very grounded and understanding when it's not just about the value of the company. Of course, it's big time that, anyway, it was like, oh, my, oh you know, too much and, and far beyond, in a way. Uh, <laughs> I'm not seeing the reality, but the, the, the practicality of what we, we can really provide. So I think with that in mind, I think we, in all humility, I think tech companies need to be super grounded on where technology can help them us and where they can, of course, enable some growth so that their employees and their people can have fulfilling jobs. Yeah. And, but to me, the task is still huge. Still, actually, uh, we are still probably at 10, 15% of the, know, of the cloudification of the world. Yeah. So we are still early stage on that. Uh, but of course, he will take as well different approaches because the world and companies and economies and more, they need actually to do more with less. And I think as, as tech companies, we need them to do that, to achieve that. That's really interesting. One of the areas that Microsoft has kind of like segued into over the last sort of 15, 20 years is gaming and that the Xbox has become a kind of yeah. hugely successful uh, side of, uh, of of the company. Where do you see the future of games and entertainment going? 
So gaming has been around forever. You know, if I was pointing to my your first question, actually one of the first products I was selling was Flight Simulator. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the eighties. Yeah, I just to to get some perspective on history. So gaming was there since day one, almost at Microsoft. I would say clearly our, our gaming vision has evolved for sure from the mm -hmm. Xbox to what you call the X Cloud, which is basically the ability to enable gaming on any device anywhere yeah. anywhere where you get connectivity obviously because some places in the world you don't get connectivity you never should re, should re, you should remember that all the time so that's that's kind of our north star is to uh, to build a set of amazing experiences on gaming and of course some of that will involve i mean all the virtual world that we are talking about you know metaverse blah 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 and you get some of that already happening, by the way, with Minecraft for young kids. Yeah. People may not recall that Minecraft has grown tremendously and is a wonderful place to actually simulate new skills for kids. As an example, we, we've created Minecraft, a bunch of skill development for sustainability so that kids in the youngest age can truly understand the impact of environment or building places, cities or whatever. Oh, having sustainability in mind, and you create a, you create actually a, a viral community just doing that in the world yeah. of Minecraft. So, this is the way we project. I mean, our vision is really to enable that uh, uh, that virtuality, that fluidity of gaming on any device in the world. Um, and what it's interesting you talk about that because the one of the things that I think is interesting about Minecraft is that. It is quite a social experience, and a lot of these games are yeah. now. And it's very similar to my generation growing up. Sort of just all we did was talk via the internet. But now a lot of people actually talk, playing games, etc. Yes. as well. And there's this assumption that we have with kids as well. It's like, well, if they really like something, then it can't be good for them. That's like this sort of like <laughs> yeah. uh, flat side of it. But where do you see the kind of like metaverse going, and and how soon do you think we're we are um, going to see that? I know there's a lot of, lot of dialogues going on Metaverse mm -hmm. these days. I think uh, as a company, we are uh, very uh, focused on the, the industrial Metaverse and commercial Metaverse happening today. So yeah. in other words, uh, we build some technologies on our Azure cloud, we call Mesh as an example, that enables companies to digitize fully their supply chain, digitize their workplaces, and be able truly also to get a lot of more virtual, vibrant conversation with their employees, with avatars and so on. And more importantly, to get some effectiveness of that industrial metaverse right now. So you've got companies like Unilever as an example, yeah. with which we built, we built building di digital twins of all their plants across the world to emulate supply chain crisis, to emulate, I would say, environmental issues and simulate and be able to understand implications and change that accordingly. So there's a lot of applications in that field of the commercial world today. And I think there's a lot in the, in the discussion going on on the consumers, the e-commerce piece and advertising piece. All good. But right now, the business community needs actually some of those technologies apply to their business needs. Yeah. And one of the other kind of, you mentioned earlier, the acquisition of LinkedIn. And it's one of the sort of, I think it's a game-changing platform for networks, and we're talking about those young people in terms of trying to find connections, inspiration, yeah. and so on. Like you've built up an incredible kind of followership, almost sort of ninety thousand on there. What's kind of and Microsoft has acquired LinkedIn as well, but yes. it's been quite a hands-off 
acquisition. Absolutely. Generally. Yes. Yes. Um, and we'd just love your reflections on yeah what the future of LinkedIn looks like um, and that networking side of things. Um, but also, you know, how can you build a kind of good brand on there and how can people utilize it for the maximum? Well, it's a big question too. Yeah, <laughs> and you're, you're, I know you're also a great practitioner on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'm a big fan of that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I love LinkedIn. As you say rightly, I mean, LinkedIn has been managed as, as really a, as an enterprise separately from Microsoft in many ways. And it, it's been wonderful to, to get to know the team of LinkedIn, to see the work they do. I think there's a, first of all, there's a, a core fundamental of LinkedIn, which is about creating trust between the members of that community, which these days, when you think about the different social media, is not is, you should not yeah. take for granted. It's a huge asset. So you just said in terms of why people get there, the kind of conversation they're having, and the kind of outcomes they want to drive with that. And so we think about the outcomes that LinkedIn, I think, is doing a great job of and, and, and expanding the future. Of course, it's about skilling. Skilling. So we are talking a lot about skilling for jobs. But yeah. there's a lot going on on LinkedIn to get to learning paths, to get to yeah. skilling, to get mentorship as well, and eventually to get to jobs, hiring. So get link, link, linkage between learning to, to staffing and jobs. You've got also a lot going on, of course, on the content itself, because there's a lot of, I think, quality content that, that the platform is, is nurturing for you, for you, Jimmy, for mm -hmm. me, Jean-Philippe, based on why I am, my areas of passion, interests, and connections to truly great job bringing to me the right exposure to the right content and, and networks. I think that the formats they've done, including some advertising formats, which were new to LinkedIn as well, yeah. have been well accepted, which is not trivial as well on the social media platform and the way you do that. And I would tell you, I think that depending, of course, on the way you use it, and I, and, and I see that connection also happening all the time. I'm, I'm getting pinged with a lot of people yeah. from young, you know, from uh, actually from young uh, entrepreneurs, uh, from uh, people, of course, looking for a job, quite, quite many, yeah. <laughs> uh, but also from incredible potential partners that we get to meet with. And so you can, you can very quickly get, uh, in a way, very targeted at building a community, I think, that that resemble you. It's not about being like you, but actually complement you and actually help you to grow and, and do more. And so in my case, I'm passionate about some of the topics which I express on LinkedIn, different formats, yeah. sometimes even a newsletter on positive leadership. It connects to the podcast and and and, and I'm trying to to live my passions with, with the, the people I connect to all the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it's really, um, really interesting. And what's one question that we ask everyone that comes on the show is what's, your favorite book or a book that's kind of inspired you on your journey? See, one of the books that re inspired me the most last few years, uh, because I keep referencing to, to many people, The Second Mountain by David Brooks. Yeah. This book is really, I don't know if you, you've read it or not yet, Jimmy. I would no, advise I you to read it. It's a great book. No, it's, it's really ref a deep reflection on, in a way, the two mountains we have in our lives. And it really depends, of course, uh, where are you in your life at any moment in your life. It's not a question of age only, by the way. He's talking about the first mountain we all climb to, which is home. You know, let, let's get up there in terms of big job, in terms of success, yeah. in terms of anyway, can, anything you project, right? <laughs> in terms of what maybe at the time it was myself calling success, right? Yeah. Clearly. And then there's a point in your life for whatever reasons where you say, well, maybe that summit was actually not the summit I was looking for. <laughs> and I think that book is wonderful in terms of not just framing the discussion, but telling, showing 
what and what can happen in your life at a point where you ask you ask yourself the question in your mirror why yeah why I'm here you know, there's a wonderful quote I'm using all the time in pictures of young people in particular but not only with my entrepreneurs with live for good is this quote from Mark Twain he said two most important dates in your life you may have heard about this quote is well first of course the day when you are born and then the day where when you understand why yeah and i think it's so profound and the second mountain is about that why yeah and why you want to get to the second mountain then and what is the second mountain about in terms of the fulfilling your real purpose maybe your real personal mission as we call it some people call it i mean they use tools like ikigai and others to define that i do believe in that a lot which is finding yourself why you do stuff and why you decide to spend time in your podcast jimmy versus going back to Yeah, go back to Downing Street. Yeah, Downing Street, which may need you now. Big base. If we, yeah, if we did yeah. this event again in two, three years, or maybe we did it as a LinkedIn audio event, yeah. as I know that's something that's being explored. Is what does that success of that second mountain look like for Jean Philippe? Then, you know, I think two years is kind of almost short term. But you're right; it's good to mm. to be <laughs> to be also grounded in reality. I would say clearly. Uh, I would love to 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 learn a lot more through my podcast on really what positive leadership is and getting to know a lot more positive leaders. Two, I would love myself to be able to make emerge many more positive leaders who are kind of the entrepreneurs for the common good in the world. And that's something I'm very fixated on, both with my foundation, but in a way with Microsoft as well, because I've got this incredible platform, which is Microsoft, which mm -hmm. is a hyperscale company. And I believe that if we can use that platform of strengths to enable those change makers I was talking about, like those startups with a wonderful set of technologies to have an impact on climate change, on inclusion, or helping out social entrepreneurs doing a great job in the UK also in the world to magnify that impact and make a difference at the time where the world needs a lot more positive change makers. Yeah, I would. I would be proud. I would be actually. I would be. I would feel great about it two years from now. Yes. What a great way to finish. Jean-Philippe, thanks for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you so much for having me, Jimmy. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our brand new TikTok and YouTube channels.